Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. I'm Nat Ortiz, Head of Collaboration and Learning Design here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's online event. I'm delighted to have the chance to talk this afternoon to Courtney Savi-Lawrence, Alex Gleddy, and Robin Klingler-Vidra. Kearney is a climate systems and social innovation practitioner and co-founder of the Circular Design Lab. She's currently based at the Oxford Said Business School as a recipient of the Executive MBA Director's Award focused on sustainable and regenerative development. Alex is Senior Policy Manager at the Innovation Growth Lab at Nesta, leading engagement work with their international network of innovation policymakers. And Robin is Associate Dean, Global Engagement and Reader in Entrepreneurship and Sustainability at King's Business School. Her research focuses on entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. What a team. Now everyone is here with me on screen. Together, they are the co-authors of the new book, Inclusive Innovation, a new framework exploring how innovation motivated by environmental and social aims is able to uplift the benefits of innovation while reducing its harms. Kearney, Alex, Robin, welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. Um, I'm also delighted that Kearney, Alex, and Robin are joined today by Pyle, Aurora, Ishtiak, Hossein, and Winnerin Lolitanon. They are contributors to their brilliant book. Pyle, Ishtiak, and Winnerin will be sharing their stories shortly with us. But first, Courtney, Alex, and Robin will give us an introduction to their work, the book, and how they define inclusive innovation. Over to you, Alex. Thank you so much, Nat. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, to have the chance to share the work that we've been doing with so many other people around the world. Um, so we wanted to start by just giving a little sense of, of who we are in our journey, how we've got to this place. And I think what really brought us together was this feeling that the dominant narratives around innovation weren't really serving many people. Um, they were ignoring a lot of people who needed to be taken into consideration. Uh, and we were really interested to explore this question of what governments could and should be doing to drive more inclusive forms of innovation. So that started in, in 2018, 2019 with the research collaboration between the three of us on behalf of UNDP. Um, we were looking particularly at what inclusive innovation policies and practices looked like in Southeast Asia. Uh, as a region where lots of interesting dynamic things are happening. Um, and we really sort of started to test out some of these ideas and think about the role of, of policy in, in driving more inclusive forms of innovation. Um, we didn't want to stop there. So we've continued this work, carried it through, and I'll hand over to Courtney to say a bit more. That's right. Um, thanks so much, Alex. One of the things, uh, as mentioned, was that we initially focused on Southeast Asia and to bring it even further to light and to collaborate and connect with more practitioners in the field, um, right before the pandemic and a little bit through the pandemic, we designed three learning and stories labs. And the idea was that we would be able to surface um, not only through the power of storytelling, but cross-pollination, what was happening on the ground. So as Alex mentioned, a lot of what we were working on previously was very upstream, but we wanted to understand what did it further look like in day-to-day -day life um, in the realities? In a, in a few moments, we'll actually hear um, some of those stories that made it uh, to the book. If you, if you see the book, you'll notice there's over 20. Um, today, we'll hear from three practitioners in just a moment. 
But this is also um, what led us to this uh, project. Uh, Robin, over to you. Great. Uh, so we published our book titled Inclusive Innovation with Rutledge, uh, an, an academic publisher in 2022. And the book brings together our various studies, stories, and the learning lab insights, as well as engagement with academic research, as well as what's happening in the policy and practitioner world. It features, as Courtney mentioned, about two dozen stories and provocations from practitioners and policymakers, and we're particularly excited about that. Uh, Courtney, back to you on what's the next uh, image on that screen. So what we've actually um, discovered is, of course, we're building on the shoulders of giants, and there's so much more um, that's coming to life. Uh, this initiative is continuing, and Robin's going to share a little bit further around what is the take, what we discovered in this process of the research. Great. So as you see here, innovation has a direction. Innovation offers potential to cure diseases, to better connect people, and to make the way we live and work more efficient and enjoyable. This is the core premise or starting point of our book and of the work. But at the same time, innovation can fuel inequality, decimate livelihoods and cause environmental degradation. So it's essential that we remember that innovation has a direction. People decide which challenges are addressed, who is included in the process, and who are targeted as beneficiaries. So we're now going to outline the three core problems that we see underpinning innovation if this directionality uh, is not intentionally considered. So the first problem is that without paying attention to direction and intent, money, human capital, and other resources go to a particular segment of innovation, information and communication technology focused, and perhaps best represented by or synonymous with Silicon Valley. And it also means that these resources and attention goes to a particular set of entrepreneurs in terms of demographics, in terms of location, skill set, etc. Now that means that a wider set of entrepreneurs are not supported and that a wider set of societal challenges are not addressed. And the funneling of resources into this narrow Silicon Valley type understanding of innovation can accentuate inequality uh, given the lack of distribution of, of such opportunities, uh, as the cartoon here on the left shows. And the consequences can also be evidenced perhaps by a recent headline about societal pushbacks that are mounting against big tech and this concentration of effort in this arena, and say the propulsion of social media, including schools acting, uh, as this headline shows, to ameliorate the damaging impact of technology on the mental health of youth. The second big challenge, uh, as we see it, relates to who is seen as an innovator. Um, we have some images up on the screen here, sort of a historical example. Uh, we think about the discovery of penicillin. Uh, what's remembered is Alexander Fleming. Um, what is not remembered is that this was a process that took many people, many years, lots of research uh, and input from across different countries, different research institutions. But we tend to focus on the lone genius, the innovator, the aha moments, uh, which really sort of leaves out all the other people who are a part of innovation. And there's some other images on the screen. I'm sure you could also uh, sort of add other people to that gallery uh, yourselves. But the, the thing is that this sends a message about who is regarded as an innovator. 
um, and it sort of leaves no space for, for other people from more diverse backgrounds who might also have much to contribute in terms of innovation, contributing new ideas and so on that will address societal challenges. So it's a big problem if we see innovation as just about individuals, single people, and we miss out the collective. Uh, and if we miss out the people whose sort of challenges need to be addressed, I think, again, as we, as we speak about in the book, it's not just about innovation being done for people uh, or to them, but it's really about being done by them. And the dominant narratives of innovation don't really take account of that. Of course, uh, the challenges are much more complex than the way that we're wrapping it into three problems. But similar to what Alex was just mentioning, of course, part of the, the issue is around who is not included in this dominant narrative. And it's not only the who, but it's also the life-centered ways in which we might be missing out on some of the key ways of thinking of the environment and the ecology. And if you think of climate change as the big backdrop, a lot of the unintended consequences that come from the types of innovations that we have seen particularly over the past 10 years, are now starting to be surfaced um, when we start looking at uh, the issues mounting up. On the left, you'll notice, for example, just the ways in which some of the, the, the types of innovations, particularly coming at scale, might have been um, packaged as a silver bullet, but then we start noticing the other kinds of ramifications. And this is becoming more and more uh, to light, but at the same time, and we do want to send a positive and hopeful message there's other ways of approaching it. So also in the book, but uh, not further expanded on too much in today's conversation is really also around a systems approach. So we're looking at the ecology, life-centered um, approaches, regenerative approaches. And in the book as well, we outline some of the exciting frameworks that are emerging. Some, for example, um, it's many of you may have already heard of Donut Economics with Kate Rayworth, a lot of research being done by Ashoka, the Schwab Center, uh, Catalyst 2030, also around the types of systemic ways that process-wise collaboration can literally help uh, shift and move the tide towards a more holistic approach when we think about inclusive innovation. So one of the messages here is also about not only who is and who is out, but what else is in and what else is out of innovation. And we argue that the environment is absolutely central um, to be a part of that conversation. So bringing it together, we're understanding inclusive innovation as needing this intentional approach. So striving to increase participation in and benefit from innovation across demographic, geographic and industrial domains. And just to say a bit about that, by demographics, uh, we need to be purposeful about inclusive uh, ethnicity, gender, age, race, et cetera. Industrial often means in terms of the productivity sectors, traditional sectors. And when we think about it also in spatial or geographic terms, uh, as capital cities and clusters tend to be what are supported and thought of as innovation hubs, uh, whereas say rural and post-industrial uh, places are not receiving the, the benefits and aren't part of our sort of narrative or, or mindset. So to summarize the core arguments that we outline in the book and which is the springboard for our broader work is three pronged responding to these three problems. So first, that innovation should be considered more broadly than information technology. Uh, so that low tech and social organizations, social innovations are equally counted and equally in our minds as forms of innovation. So we need to go beyond that Silicon Valley mindset. Second, that innovation is a collaborative 
collaborative process in which problem owners are crucial problem solvers. So beyond the heropreneur uh, problem that Alex outlined, and the idea that a single individual, particularly someone not experiencing the challenge, can solve the challenge, uh, let alone identify it. Uh, so towards more of a systems approach, as Courtney mentioned. And third, that inclusion is necessarily about people and planet. So ecological concerns need to be at the center of inclusive innovation rather than a focus on human or on socioeconomic uh, and these types of uh, human focused understandings of inclusion. So that leads us to the exciting part, which is the fact that, of course, uh, there are so many amazing things happening globally. And I hope that many of you watching today could actually also think of yourself, if you haven't already, as working in this space, working in the field, working upstream or downstream on building the practice of inclusive innovation. And so just to highlight on the book itself is a book, uh, as, as we've mentioned, but this is also a community of practice. And on the website, we've started to work towards making the, the stories that are a part of the book more easily accessible. So you don't have to download the whole book, but you can actually click and, and go through the, the two dozen uh, interesting cases, if you will. And so we're going to be hearing, as mentioned, from three of the two dozen uh, today's as contributors or those that were literally a part of the project. And, and with that, I would like to pass it over to Nat, who's going to do a little bit of the, the introduction of our speakers that are joining from all around the world today. Over to you, Nat. Thank you so much for that introduction to your work. I particularly like the emphasis that you've put on problem owners having the agency of being the problem solvers um, and inclusion of people as well as what we like to say also at the RSA, the more than human, so other species with whom we share this planet. Um, this is all very aligned with our current Design for Life mission at the RSA of unlocking the potential in human, social and natural capital to achieve a more resilient, rebalanced and regenerative future for all. Um, so, now, really excitingly, we have some of the contributors to, to the stories of the book, and we'd like to turn to Pyle, Istiak, and Winnerin to give us a bit of information on their work um, and how they tell the stories that are in the book. First up, Istiak, over to you. Thanks, Nat. So the unsung hero of my story is uh, Ferdosi whom you see sitting second from the left with a baby on her lap. The baby, by the way, is her daughter, Munjarin. And the two unlikely characters who had the privilege of empowering her, Anir Chaudhary, my boss, and A2I, the amazing kind of unique organization that I get to be a part of. It's a story about digital transformation, something that is all too often equated with things like 5G, artificial intelligence, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and so on. But really, it's a story about making digital transformation in Bangladesh more inclusive, making the billions of dollars invested in the sector work for the poor, about designing digital solutions to public service challenges that help the masses, especially those who can't afford the internet, those who can't use computers, those without smartphones. So it's really a story about making digital work for the poor, people like Ferdosi. Now, imagine it's the middle of July. The monsoon season is upon us. Imagine dark gray clouds pouring rain incessantly on a tiny mud-walled hut in a remote 
lush green village in Southern Bangladesh. Peek through the solitary window and you see a young mother still in her teens sat on a jajim on the floor. Ferdosi is staring blankly at the ceiling as her two month old daughter sleeps peacefully on her lap. Her own mind is restless, her head pounding. Rofik, her husband who pulled rickshaw vans for a living was killed in a tragic road accident less than a month before the birth of their daughter. She was struggling to decide whether she should resume working as a domestic help. It paid a paltry thousand takas, approximately $13 US a month, and she desperately needed the money. But what about Munjarin, her baby, who would take care of her? Although she didn't know it, Ferdosi was eligible for maternity allowance, five and a half dollars per month that was provided by the government as part of its social security program. But the roads were often impassable after rains, and how could she make the 20 kilometer round trip to the nearest sub-district government office without someone to watch her child. This was the predicament that uh, Firdausi found herself in. And this was precisely the kind of unsexy, unpopular, far from cutting edge, but very real challenge that Anir, my boss and founder of A2I attempted to take on. It was not to improve the internet, or to facilitate e-commerce platforms or to usher in robots and AI, but rather it was to design digital solutions that would help the masses, those without internet, those without smartphones, those commonly left behind by mainstream digitization and help bridge that digital divide. Now, I won't talk about precisely what the innovation was or how Anir and A2I managed to solve Ferdosi's problem. You'll just have to read the book to find out. I'll just end by describing the third and final character in the story, A2I. What is A2I? Well, A2I started life as an e-governance project supported by UNDP and housed within the prime minister's office of the government of Bangladesh. The Awami League, which is the ruling political party in Bangladesh, had won a massive landslide election back in 2008 by generating great excitement among the youth around its election manifesto, promising to build a digital Bangladesh. However, beyond that, it had little to no idea on how to materialize that vision, that election promise into something concrete, something real that would be of actual use to the voting public. Now, uh, Robin was talking about Europreneurs. This was where our quote unquote govpreneur Anir came in, giving up his comfortable family life in the US and a million dollar startup he helped launch. He moved back to his motherland and assembled a team composed of not only outstanding civil servants handpicked from different levels of bureaucracy but also private sector experts and people with experience working with NGOs, academics and student volunteers. That in and of itself was an unprecedented step in making government innovation in Bangladesh more inclusive. This hodgepodge of a team became A2I and together they created space for experimentation from within the government, within the public sector in Bangladesh and used insights derived from that experience to design an ecosystem for digital service access that promoted inclusion, 
rather than widening the digital divide. Thank you. Back to you, Nat. Thank you so much for that really inspiring story, Isiak. I really enjoyed the way you, you shared it with us as well. I think many of us can relate to the frustration of systems that aren't serving the people who need it the most. Well, the focus is, is on kind of serving, uh, developing systems that serve maybe just a few. So your story, it's, it's really, really inspiring. Um, now I'm going to hand over to uh, Winnerin. Thank you so much, Nat. Thailand Clean Air Network is a citizen-driven advocacy group pushing for clean air in Thailand. Uh, what has happened in Thailand um, and the story I'm going to share is about how citizens who are passionate and wanting to make a difference and are crazy enough to think that they can push for a policy-wide solution um, is on the path to doing that. We started about four, five years ago, actually, when the air quality um, in Bangkok got really bad. In Northern Thailand, it was, um, has been suffering for the last 15 years. Um, it, we, we initially started as a, a small group of four or five people from a, a different, a multitude of different um, disciplines. So economists, environmental lawyers, medical doctors, uh, financial economists, um, we have uh, public communications people, we have yeah, as, um, air pollution scientists in our group. But it was really difficult for us to, to, to build our narrative and to build the awareness beyond, be, uh, beyond the scope that we could reach. And that was when um, the link up, the hookup between the Thailand Clean Air Network and the Circular Design Lab happened. So this, um, the Circular Design Lab was at that juncture looking at exploring using syst systemic design thinking and trying to explore and find solutions to some of the toughest issues. And one of the issues that they had looked into was air pollution. And that was how we got together and collaborated. And that led to formating a, a session of uh, a roadshow that lasted for 10 months, where the body of knowledge that the, the Thailand Clean Air Network had developed, um, which was um, concept papers that we developed, was disseminated through this. Uh, what, what happened through this collaboration is that we were able to jointly then build and expand on the network of people who were involved so we managed to bring together people from all walks. So whether they're artists, whether they're branding experts, whether they're sustainability people, um, whether they're journalists, um, a really broad range of folks got involved. And we were lucky that um, we also got support from the uh, Royal Society, um, the RSA as well. Uh, and through that, we were, uh, we were able to, uh, to have the right to clean air as one of the student design award uh, issues that was raised um, a couple of years ago too. So uh, with this big collaboration, um, what had happened is that uh, the, this has helped to galvanize the awareness, the public awareness of, of the importance of the right to breathe clean air, which is ultimately the right to life itself. Uh, the big policy push that the Thailand Clean Air Network has been developing 
is concept papers that supported the first citizen-driven Clean Air Act for the country. Uh, and what was needed was to get public signatures to support this. And we started at a point where people didn't understand what this invisible killer, how important it is to their life. And if you don't have that understanding, there's no reason why you'd want to support something like this. So that was a challenge that we faced. Now, through the collaboration that we had with a whole mixture of people from all walks of life, coming in together, banding together, joining in. And we had collaborations from people from all the way from, um, from the US. We, we even had at one point through the, the connection with the RSA, we had a Portuguese book designer reach out to us to offer to, to use her free time to design whatever we needed. And at the end, she actually was the person who designed the cover for the, uh, the, the, Thai, the Draft Thai Clean Air Act, as well as the Record of Intent, which is a beautiful cover and has actually made this legislation really stand out and pop out whenever it's actually referenced in the public domain. What this whole process actually ultimately um, led to is um, within a period of two years, we solicited over 20,000 over 20, odd signatures that enabled us to hit the um, to be above the watermark, um, which is 10,000 signatures. And currently the draft Thailand legislation has been submitted to parliament now for a year and is waiting deliberation and consideration um, as passage into law. Now, how did we do all of this? I think I will defer that to the book, which walks through this entire process uh, for all to hear. I think I'll end by just saying that you never underestimate the power of what a small group of committed people can do to change the world. In fact, it is the only thing that ever has. And that was the uh, famous quote from Margaret Mead. So thank you. And I bring this, give this, hand it over back to Natalie. Thank you, Winnerin, for that story. And yeah, giving us that introduction to your work and the achievements of those, as you said, crazy enough citizens. Um, it's really exciting how you managed to include so many people along the way and put forward a bold policy proposal that is currently under review, so fingers crossed. Um, and last but not least, over to you, Pyle. Thanks so much, Nat. And uh, yes, this is really inspiring to be here and listen uh, to all these stories. And I'd like to contribute my own little story, which is basically that we co-founded, um, that is Usha Raman, who is my co-founder in uh, Hyderabad, India, and myself co-founded this organization collective called FemLab which is a feminist future of work in the global South. And we situated it in India and Bangladesh and partnered with an organization, Harambi in Kenya. And now basically this was at the onset of the pandemic. So there were some crazy things happening, which in the name of innovation could be seen as extraordinarily exciting, right? Like for example, India and Bangladesh launched the unified payment uh, interface, which was supposed to accelerate payments to a lot of workers who were laid off or who couldn't work because of the lockdowns. Uh, so this was something of a major feat in a very short time, we were able to do something of that sort. Also, for example, biometric identity uh, identities, which has been controversial to some extent, kicked in again, which enabled the sort of payment interfaces. But the big question was that despite this all, why was a lot of majority of migrants not 
capitalizing on this. Majority of them were not even tapping into these resources. So uh, then there was another question about why were women workers declining in the marketplace? So it didn't seem like innovation was being compatible with those at the margins, which happens to be the majority of the world, right? So a team uh, of us in uh, different parts of India and Bangladesh and uh, Africa came together to look into these issues by putting women workers in the, particularly in very precarious settings at the center of imagining what constitutes as inclusive design and modifying algorithmic systems to reduce the uh, sort of unfairness of work practices and create more dignified ways of living, right? So anyway, more details, of course, in the book, but one of the things we, you know, step back from is really that all this does it, yes, you do all these sort of stakeholder initiatives, grassroots, you know, and all the checks on what is supposed to be inclusive, but it doesn't happen naturally, and it is not far from harmonious, and they're always trade-offs and tensions, and I think it really helps to look at it in terms of uh, you know, you need to have the right set of incentives, investments, and interventions, right? So when you talk about incentives, it's, it's about how do we motivate people to care about people who are the other, like away from your imagination, and for the planet? Uh, you know, is the future of work in harmony with the future of the planet? How do we make that so, right? These are the questions that really drive us and grapple. We have to grapple with it. And you know, so for example, with the incentives, a lot of people were really interested, uh, especially uh, in how to motivate uh, with the automation, say, of the garment industry, even more so because of the pandemic. Uh, we noticed that a lot of the stakeholders were imagining uh, young males to take over from a very heavy women-led industry, right? So the women were not even part of the imaginary of future design because they were not looked upon as someone who were able to, you know, ride the wave of automation. So in terms of investment as a second tier, right, is yes, there's a lot of momentum on sort of green investments, activist investors, you know, the future of innovations should be diverse but it's still quite top uh, down and when you're doing sort of a grassroots initiative uh, it does require sort of a ongoing digital campaigns and so we partnered with an organization called justice ara to sort of fuel the imagination of how do we think about this differently and how do we tap into already existing cool initiatives at the grassroots level and support them and not try to invent the wheel right and the last is about interventions, right? What kinds of social and technical measures are needed to sort of activate change for social and planetary well-being? And it's not these grand disruptions necessary that are needed, you know, our obsession with novelty and the individual hero as already mentioned, but it is oftentimes very boring and very sort of incremental, but can make dramatic changes. For example, in the ride hailing sector, where we are pushing women workers, uh, women drivers to enter the industry, which is uh, dramatically scarce uh, for a whole uh, variety of reasons. Um, one of the biggest uh, uh, barriers was the lack of access to toilets. And so it's a small intervention which can have dramatic outcomes in terms of inclusive innovation. And with that, I just want to you know, leave with this point that, of course, these systems have to be iterative, right? We have to create a sort of inbuilt mechanism where we can pause, reflect, and go back because it is messy. And I hope, you know, we can do that and continue to do so, including with this book and this initiative. 
So thank you and handing this back to Nat. Thank you, Kyle. Um, yeah, really, really great to hear from you. I particularly um, kind of stay with that question, is the future of work in harmony with the future of, of the planet? And your focus on releasing potential, right? Like not, not just like solving a problem, but actually bringing imagination and a diverse group of voices to the table to recreate and reimagine, as you say, and to engage with the mess and, and, and the challenges that come with that. Um, to, to recreate something that, that's better for everyone. Um, super inspiring to hear from, from the three of you. Um, really grateful for your presentation. Um, so now I, I wonder, um, it's all fascinating and I'm really curious to learn more about what happens next. Um, would you like to share a little bit, us, a little bit with us, uh, Robin, about your plans moving forward with this work? Great. Yes, absolutely. And just to echo, it's really exciting and it's fantastic to hear the stories from the, the authors and from our protagonists. So I'll start with maybe the easy one with the what now. Uh, so to say we heard a lot in, in the session so far about the need for how our mindset can evolve and change. So the core what now is, is that we're working to mainstream this notion of inclusive innovation in the context of work with organizations like the RSA, for instance, our call to action is to leverage creative skills and various design mediums and, and tools to help convey inclusive innovation to a wider audience. So engage in accessible formats, perhaps more accessible uh, than some of the academic books and, and articles that uh, people like Payal and myself write. Um, and, produce infographics and audio uh, interviews and podcasts and videos, uh, hopefully like this one is helping to portray inclusive innovation in more accessible terms. Uh, Courtney, can I hand over to you for the uh, playbook? Great, thank you so much. And maybe just to also um, connect the dots with the, the image that you see to the left, which is from a recent um, post by the Eunice Griffith Center around patterning for systems change. One of the key things that you'll see throughout the book as well, uh, we go back to over and over again, and a little bit of what was discussed probably throughout everything that this, each speaker was mentioning is around a systems lens and a systems approach. Um, the way that we're looking at this as well is that we've identified problems that have been obvious or visible and experienced um, in that first part of our, of our talk. Um, these are symptoms, right? And if we look underneath uh, what's really holding the status quo into place. There's so many dynamic different um, elements. It's complex. And of course, um, we're not saying that there's a one-size-fits-all approach. But one of the key things that we will continue to double-click on is around this climate notion. And so there's a, another work in play around a climate uh, inclusive climate innovation playbook. And so we invite you, if this is something that's of interest to you, understanding that there's, of course, a link between climate and social dynamics and the socio-technical ways in which we could be thinking around um, how the future will evolve. Um, please do get in touch. There's more information on the website, um, which is also linked. And with that being said, a little bit more about the COP. So over to Alex for that. Thanks, Courtney. So absolutely, we want to continue this conversation to open it up and to invite many more people into it. Uh, it's great to be able to share with you here today, but we'd also like to be able to talk to people uh, and, and hear more about what others are working on. So there is a, a LinkedIn community of practice connected to this work. 
uh, which can be found at our website. Um, the details are there, inclusiveinnovation.io, where you can find the book to download, the stories and so on. And we'd love to, to hear from others who are working in this space, thinking about these ideas and can help develop and, and build on all the work that we've been doing with our collaborators in recent years. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So we're going to have to wrap up. But Courtney, Alex, Robin, Pale, Ishtiak and Winnerin, many thanks for talking to me today. And thank you to the viewers for joining us in this brilliant event. If you're watching along today, the book Inclusive Innovation is available now, as Alex mentioned, and can be accessed for free at the Inclusive Innovation website. It's really worth a read. Um, and this event is part of the RSA's regular free Thursday lunchtime series. There are lots of brilliant events, so check out the RSA's website to see more of what's coming up. And finally, thank you again uh, to all of the contributors and speakers today, and thank you all of you for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.